Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Terrence Malagon. Man, am I excited about this podcast. We have a conversation with Renee Young and Paul Heyman of the WWE. They are together, and they are just sensational. Renee Young is one of the commentators each week on Monday Night Raw. She is the first woman to serve as an analyst on that show full-time. She's been on this podcast before. You can catch her work as part of the broadcast crew of WrestleMania 35. That is on the WWE Network. Paul Heyman, if you are a fan of the WWE, really does not need any introduction. One of the most iconic figures in the history of sports entertainment. He is currently the advocate for Brock Lesnar and delivering promos each week on Raw like no one else. You will, of course, see him at WrestleMania 35 as well. So Paul Heyman and Renee Young together, they were great. That is followed by John Orand of the Sports Business Daily and Sports Business Journal. I'm not going to put him over as much as I just did Heyman and Renee Young. But John Orand and I talk about some of the issues of the day in sports media, including uh, Tony Romo and contractual negotiations, where things stand on the Pac-12, the RSNs. we got about 25, 30 minutes of sports media talk, just so we have that there. But this podcast is really about Renee Young and Paul Heyman, and I think you're going to enjoy it. And they are coming up right after this. All right, my two guests this week do not need introductions, but they will get introductions nevertheless. Renee Young is one of the commentators each week on Monday Night Raw. She's the first woman to serve as an analyst on that show full-time. That is a major accomplishment in broadcasting. She has been a broadcaster with the WWE since 2012, and before that, she was doing great things at the score here in my beloved Toronto, where uh, her popularity uh, now trumps Justin Trudeau. Paul Heyman. Wow. Yeah, I know, Renee. I'm sorry. It was a bit of an oversell. <laughs> Paul Heyman, where to begin? He is one of the most iconic figures in the history of sports entertainment. Uh, last time he was on the show, I did my ladies and gentlemen, but I'm not going to do that, even though he is still the advocate for defending undisputed universal heavyweight champion of the world. He is a central figure in pro wrestling and has been for decades promoter, owner, manager, Rock Contour. He has his own marketing company, Looking for a Larry Agency. I believe that still exists. Uh, I will say for this podcast, it was harder to book him than it was to open up East Germany. But he is here today. It is WrestleMania week, so let's get the promos out of the way. WrestleMania 35 Sunday from MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. You will catch both of these two on that show. Renee will be part of the WrestleMania broadcast team. Paul Heyman will be the advocate for Brock Lesnar. And with that... Renee Young and Paul Heyman, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. I don't even know where to begin in correcting you. Um, <laughs> let's see. First of all, it, it's not ladies and gentlemen; it's ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> and then, and and also, it's 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 not uh, defending undisputed; it's reigning defending undisputed universal heavyweight champion. Um, his, his name is not to be thrown away as if it's just any other name like you know it's joe it's bob it's billy it's brock lesnar um what else is there i, I am a rock tour yeah, you gotta put some stank on it uh so here's my first question renee why is paul Heyman so hard to book as a podcast guest because <laughs> paul 
Heyman's the busiest man around. I mean, you said it. This man's a mover and a shaker. He's doing everything, especially this week. I mean, it's WrestleMania 35. We're in New York. It's Paul Heyman's town. I mean, yeah, this man is, he's, he's the guy. He's, he's hard to pin down, but you did it. So that speaks volumes to uh, to what we're doing here on your podcast today. <laughs> thank, thank, thanks for putting me over, Renee. That's nice. Um, <laughs> all right. For, let's, uh, here, we'll be serious now. Here's where I'm going to start. I'm going to each. I'm going to ask you the same question. I'm going to start with you, Renee. What makes well, Paul? Hold on, wait a second. If you interrupted me, I, I get to interrupt you. What makes Go you ahead. think I wasn't being serious before? <laughs> no, I mean, you, really. I mean, I and I am busier than Bill Belichick on Super Bowl week. But what makes you think I was clowning around? I was serious in everything I was saying. Just because I say it with grace and style and charm doesn't mean I'm not saying something that I truly advocate for that position. Listen, Paul, Jeez. no one is a better advocator than you. And I have no doubt that you are busy uh, beyond busy. So I am Hang appreciative the word. To, the, to the highest degree. And that is why I will get this podcast back on focus. Renee, what makes Paul such an effective public speaker. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, he's just so compelling to watch. Um, he's so animated. Um, and his just the way that his mind works, I think, makes him the best at what he does. I and mean, you've already said, you know, lifts off some of the accolades of what he's, he's been able to do in the world of sports entertainment. Um, I think anybody that can kind of drink from the, the, the knowledge of, of Paul Heyman is going to be better off for it. And I think just being able to watch him as a public speaker and as an entertainer. Um, yeah, I, I, he's, he's magic. He's got that little magic thing about him. Paul, what makes Renee Young so effective as a public speaker? Her improv skills. The, the, I can pretty much, with all humility aside, teach anyone to deliver a message in a soundbite, but I can't teach how, someone how to improv. Improv in speaking and in, in dialect is a reflex. It's not a skill. And Renee Young has it, and she has it in overabundance. It's the same way that if you approach a trained fighter, if you approach a Floyd Mayweather, a Brock Lesnar, a Ronda Rousey, uh, a Conor McGregor, uh, um, you know, someone like Khabib, and, 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 and you approach them, and even if you're from the side, if you throw a punch towards them, they will block that punch and deck you. And when you have hit the ground, they sit there and go, oh, man, oh, my God, I've been in a fight. They will not even realize that they blocked a punch and they threw <laughs> a punch or a kick or a headbutt because it's a reflex. It just happens. And then all of a sudden they realize something they had engaged in something. When you engage with Renee on an intellectual basis or a performance basis, um, what happens is that she relies on her improv and, and her improv instincts, which are not, again, they're not skills, they're instincts. And she is so quick to the draw, and sometimes she will um, pull back on that to give the conversation the rhythm that it deserves, but she's ready and she's ready because she, her mind is so in tune with whatever conversation that she's in that she doesn't have to think of the answer. The answer is produced. And by the time she says it, she realizes, Oh my God, I just said that. 
And, and <laughs> that it, means it's it, some it, trouble sometimes. <laughs> but 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 that's but that's also why she her learning curve on Monday Night Raw has been beyond what any other commentator has ever demonstrated on the show, which is why she was also such a, an effective comedian because the filter happens organically and it happens without her having to think of the filter. She just relies on her own reflexes and they are so sharp and so in tune and so witty and intelligent and funny that you're engaging with someone that can hold their own in any conversation with anybody at, at any level of intellect. And she does it in a way that when she speaks to you, it's relatable to the masses. She'll never speak. Renee does not speak over your head. And believe me, she can. Her, 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 um, her capacity for vocabulary is astounding, but she doesn't, she doesn't tap into that. She, she keeps it so that anyone listening to the conversation can understand it, relate to it, and identify with it immediately. And it just it it, it, it makes for a, ma- a, a a communicator of magnificent proportions. Renee, one of the things Paul mentioned there used the word learning curve. And the last time we spoke, you were right at the beginning of your raw journey. You had I think either it was either right before your first show or maybe your second show or so. Where are you now in terms of um, comfort? improv, um, just feeling uh, that that job is now your job as opposed to the first couple of weeks, which I imagine everything just felt new like any new assignment would. Yeah, you know, I think it was, um, I mean, I definitely feel far more comfortable in the role now. And I think I've been able to kind of find what my role actually is. And I've been kind of wanting to just wear the hat of, you know, you're watching, you're watching WWE with a buddy and I want it to feel like that. I mean, I'm not going to be um, a, a great wrestling announcer, like, like how Michael Cole is, or I'm not going to bring to the table what Corey Graves does. So I'm trying to like find what my pocket is and stay in that and own that spot. But also like having that, that, like that confidence um, switch for me to, to, to take that spot and own that spot. Cause I think there was like, almost a little bit of like, ooh, I, do I deserve this? Should I be in this spot? How do I kind of own that space? And I think I've been um, trying to fill in that. And I think that I've kind of arrived at that spot now to, to take what I, what I want to be mine. And I want to have that spot. Um, and I would like to comfortably sit in that spot for as long as I, as long as I possibly can. One more for you, Renee, before I go to Paul. How much freedom does WWE give you when it comes to... Um, when it, when it comes to whatever kind of commentary you want, are you restricted in any kind of sense during each of the um, matches that you're calling, or is it truly improv where um, you can go when, when, when you want to go? Um, yeah, I, I don't feel restrained uh, really at all. I think that everyone's been very gracious um, with letting me do my thing and find out what works for me and what doesn't work for me. And, you know, if I say something that I feel doesn't work or I said something in a weird spot that I know didn't work, I can feel it instantly that I know that something was wrong or maybe that was like a misplaced moment. Um, So I kind of critique myself as I'm going or sort of, you know, self-editing along the way to to realize what works and what doesn't work. But um, yeah, I, I don't feel, I don't feel that I'm held back or, 
that I can't say or do anything. And I think being the first woman, I do think that there's a lot of freedom in that, that I don't have anyone's shoes to fill. I'm kind of just walking in my own shoes and, uh, and trying to, to do the best job that I can do. So I think that everyone has been pretty aware of that and not trying to, they're not trying to make me be somebody that I'm not or try to be like, uh, you know, one of my predecessors that's been in that spot before me. Um, so it's, it's really cool to have that freedom. It's, and I, yeah, I, I couldn't thank WWE enough for really not stepping on my toes or making me feel like I had to be in a certain box. Paul, you, um, you are one of the best I've ever seen at getting over with an audience. Uh, and one of the things in doing research for this podcast I saw was something you think about is how can I sell the hardest and most effectively in the fewest words possible? This is a sports media podcast. There's a lot of broadcasters or wannabe broadcasters who listen to this. So how do you do that? How do you sell to the audience in the most effective way possible using the fewest amount of words? Well, you see, when, when, you, when we get interviewed on a podcast like this, it's a conversation. And, and it's more just a free-form description of the random thoughts that go through my mind when you ask me such a question. So... This is just the long form of what would then actually come out in, in far shorter doses in more memorable sound bites on television. So if we were to decide, all right, we're going to do this for television, or we're going to do this in a non-podcast form, then what I would do is I would write down all these thoughts that I'm articulating at the moment, and then I would look at each and every word and ask if that word drives me to the final point that I want to make. What I usually do when I, when I want to convey a message is I write the last line and then I write the first. And when I say the first line, I don't mean ladies and gentlemen, my name is Paul Heyman. Because after I do the introduction, I always give a thesis statement. I'm here tonight to talk about this. And I write that thesis statement after I tell you the last thing that I'm going to say. So once I know where I'm going, then it, it's the same thing as getting in a car. I'm driving from New York to Toronto. I put, I put into the GPS the address in Toronto, and I look for the shortest way to get there in, in, in the most um, expeditious time that I, I can achieve. It's the same thing. I'm not, not going to drive from New York to Toronto by going through Montreal. I'm, I'm going to go as direct as I can because that's how you deliver the message. And the fewer words that you use, the more value in each word that is used. So once I see it on a piece of paper, I can pass judgment on every single solitary word that's on that page and justify to myself why I would actually say that word. And then what you, you get is the editing process and a filtering process so that before you deliver that answer or deliver that message or deliver that soundbite or, or, or convey your thoughts, you have trimmed it down to the core, to the essentials, so that every single word that you say is, is not only must hear but can't miss. And then the audience is going to listen to you because they understand that the value of every word that you say is worth far more then what each word of someone else's uh, doing will be because you have more value per word. 
Wow. Renee, I feel like Paul should be teaching this at a college uh, course. Oh, Don't you agree? Uh, 100%. 100%. Yeah, he can't take the pay cut, though, I would think. But, but, that, but that's what politicians do. It, I mean, seriously, it, it, I mean, it's, isn't that, w- w- I mean, the current president aside, but actually, if, if, if you listen to how he communicates, he also does practice a lot of these theories in that he will repeat things that he wants to, to beat into the consciousness. Um, it, it's a lot of repetition on the points. He will say things like, you know, I, I, I can walk down Fifth Avenue, Fifth Avenue in New York City. And when I walk down Fifth Avenue, a lot of people recognize me, a lot of people. And you sit there and, and he drills these messages into your head. But politicians in general learn to talk in seven second sound bites. You know, they, 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 they don't get into even on, on, on huge issues that have many different concepts involved in them they will narrow it down to simple headlines if we do this the the, uh the general public will pay more taxes i believe in lowering taxes boom now here's a complex issue and they've now narrowed it down to a seven second soundbite so that a they can run it on the news and b they deliver their message in as few words as possible with the most amount of impact that they can offer in the few words that they're offering Renee, one of the we're going to jump around here, obviously, because I don't have you guys for a ton of time. So uh, I want to hit a, as many things as I can. Renee, one of the things I really admire about your last couple of months is you were in a unique situation that no other. Uh, I can make, make make sure I say this correctly. Yeah, no other broadcaster in the history of pro wrestling probably has had to deal with, and that's you're calling matches, you're reacting to things that involve your real life spouse, and I wonder yeah. what. Um, how much of an adjustment was that, and how much work was that for you to be able to navigate what was essentially a a unique experience that I'm not sure anyone's ever had to deal with in in sports entertainment? Yeah, it was definitely tough, especially um, when he was um, in the in the bad guy role, trying to find reasons to justify what he was doing. Because I sort of felt like I, no matter what, you stand by your husband. Uh, no matter what he's doing, so trying to find reasons to justify the actions that he was doing in the ring, um, and then kind of bouncing back and forth. It, it was definitely like, yeah, it was tough to navigate of like how we were going to handle that, um, how he wants it to be handled, how how I want to be able to do my job, what's going to make Vince happy. Uh, it, yeah, it was definitely tough. Um, and then you know, watching him in these last man standing matches or false count anywhere matches and getting pencil stabs through his eyeball. Um, I would just try to always slip into just wife role at that point and react to my husband uh, instead of, uh, you know, a WWE superstar. Right. Well, just mention for those who don't know, Dean Ambrose is uh, Renee Young's, uh, the former Dean Ambrose oh, yeah. is Renee Young's. Paul, one of the things that I've always heard about the WWE, and, um, you know, this is obviously a compliment to you, is that you are sort of known backstage as the promo whisperer. If people want some advice on how to do their promos they i have heard that they go to paul Heyman. um whether that is uh, people in the past whether that is currently ronda rousey um so i want to know how how involved are you with other talent when it comes to those who want to work on their on their promos which is something obviously that that you are renowned and known for 
Well, Ronda Rousey is 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 not a secret. I I work with Ronda Rousey on her promos in in in, in an official capacity even, and it has been truly a career highlight and 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 a life highlight and a life lesson for me dealing with Ronda on on a on a daily basis because uh, Ronda is all is all in in everything that she does. Um, she she just she dedicates every single part of her being to getting the job done and getting it done better than anybody else has ever done it before. So when Ronda does a promo on Monday Night Raw, by way of example, nine o'clock Eastern Time on a Monday, when she comes off air by nine oh seven nine oh eight Eastern Time, she's already discussing next week's promo by nine fifteen. And by six o'clock in the morning, when she's on a plane on Tuesday morning, she has already sent me three or four different concepts with three or four different completely written out promos for the next week saying, what do you think of this? What about this approach? What about that approach? How, how about if we look at it from this perspective? Hey, you know, here, here's maybe, here's a first paragraph and the, the process begins and, it, and it's a week long process to get to whatever she's going to say the next Monday night. It, it, it is an amazing experience to work with somebody that dedicated to be um, a historical difference maker. As for other people, to me, it goes like this. I have been cutting promos in this business for 32 years. I've been around the business just about 40 years. I've been in it full time for 32 and I, and I and before then for the you know a couple of years before I broke in as a talent I was already dabbling in in that end of it as well and promoting etc cetera, etc cetera. if for nothing else but because I have survived this long on the air one would think hey, let's go to the old man and ask him what he thinks of this <laughs> because he survived you know I mean <laughs> It, 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 if I if there's a zombie apocalypse uh, and 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 the world has narrowed down to you know not not nine billion people but there's only a couple of a hundred a couple hundred of us left or if there's a nuclear or there's a nuclear holocaust um, I'm gonna go look at the hundred and four year old man and go hey what's your secret because you know everybody else in their thirties I'm already past them I want to know the secret to longevity. So if for nothing else, I understand why someone would come to me and say, hey, you know, give me a clue on this, because at least I know how to survive different pop culture trends, different movements, different eras, different regimes, um, different millenniums even, you know. So in, in that regard, I understand why. But I also have, um, I would suggest, a great appreciation for talent because I'm a fan of the talent. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of, of people who have the capacity to put on great performances. And, 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 and I'm, to this day, always honored, besides being flattered or thrilled or I feel affirmation or anything like that, I'm honored when, some, when, when someone of great talent comes up to me and says, hey, can you work with me on this? Because I get a chance to work with them. And in that, I get to learn about them and I get to learn about their approach, and that keeps me young because now I'm, I'm talking to someone that is younger than I am, that has a younger person's perspective, and I'm listening to how they decipher 
a promo, and I'm and I'll tell you straight up, I steal from them, not words and concepts, but I steal from them a mentality, I steal from them a perspective, because my perspective of that is that of a fifty three year old man. I, I, I'm not going to have the perspective of a 30, 31 year old, 32 year old. So when they come to me and say, Hey, help me with this. I get to see how they look at the world, how they look at a promo. And it's a far more youthful perspective than mine. So I benefit from them as much as they benefit from me. Renee, Paul said something um, that was interesting there. And he said, he's a fan of the talent. And one of the things that I've always appreciated from you, and this goes back to your days working in NXT is you have been an advocate for um, the women's division, uh, about as good an advocate as I think that company has in terms of selling that product. And we're seeing, obviously, WrestleMania is going to be main evented by Charlotte Flair, Ronda Rousey, and Becky Lynch. And I want to ask you a question about Becky Lynch. Pretty much, I have not seen somebody who's been this over with the audience in some time. Anything she does, people love. Uh, as I told you before we went on, I'm a total Becky Lynch mark now. She could say anything and, <laughs> you know, she'd make me basically do it, sad as that sounds. How does that happen? <laughs> I'll let her know that. <laughs> how, 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 does, how, does, um, how, does somebody, how does somebody get to a point where they are that over with the audience as, as she has done? I think with Becky, I mean, at the core of it, she's just immensely talented. Um, I, I think she just has such a great background. She's been doing this since she was like 18 years old, traveled around the world. She has like that life skill uh, of, of traveling the world and being able to, to kind of adapt to different situations. But I mean, when I first met Becky at NXT and watching her characters change and grow and, and watching her as like a woman change and grow, I think the part that she got to now for the success of Becky Lynch, the man where she is, I think she developed that chip on her shoulder. And I think that once you get to that spot and you can kind of say, F it, I'm taking whatever I can get. I'm taking what I feel is mine. I think that is a really special, uh, a special moment for a performer to get into and you don't have to care what anyone thinks or says anymore. And that's what makes somebody so relatable and makes people want to be a part of it. I mean, obviously people make the huge connection of her and Stone Cold. Um, but yeah, I, I just think she got in that special spot of not giving a damn what anyone said or thought about her anymore, and she could really just let her true colors uh, bubble up to the surface. Um, watching her and Charlotte, their relationship down uh, over the years, and watching their successes uh, in in WWE throughout the years, and seeing Becky always wanting more, demanding more, uh, and now for her to actually have that and to be main eventing and seeing the last like year, the last six months especially for Becky. Uh, have just absolutely catapulted her into like mega superstardom. I want to ask both uh, you and Paul one question about process. So I'll start with you, Renee. Um, in terms of the process to be ready for your show on Monday, um, is there a particular day of the week where which is busiest for you in terms of work, whether it's uh, run through, whether it's production? Can you give me just a quick snapshot of of what a traditional week work week would be like in terms of leading up to Raw? Um, I mean, for me, obviously, Raw is the busy day. I mean, that's when we're getting our notes together, um, getting with talent, um, trying to, you know, make sense of what kind of story we're trying to tell on air. I usually, um, on like Saturday or Sunday before I fly out, will gather roughly what I think we might be working towards, and I will put some of my notes together for that as far as like, you know, and still for me, I mean, I've been doing this for about six months, so I'm still kind of figuring out what method works best for me. And I try to come at it actually from 
from when I was doing kickoff panels, what, what, what are the questions that I would be asking everybody else in one of those panels? Now, what is my, my actual answer to those questions and how can I um, add those into the show uh, just as far as like forming my opinions on people? Do I like what they're doing? Don't I like what they're doing? Um, and then, yeah, getting, getting with talent, going through people's social media, grabbing quotes from things, um, stuff that I know would be like a nice story to be able to tell uh, during Raw. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, just a few few hours before we go on the air is just kind of like finalizing things, trying to, uh, and as, as Heyman said earlier, it's like I do rely heavily on just like instincts and sort of knee-jerk reactions because I ultimately I want to have all this information. If I use it, great. If I don't, fine. Because I do want to like, I'm, I'm a, a huge over-preparer as well. I'm constantly just like at my computer writing stuff down, trying to see what kind of other relevant stuff in the world that I would like to bring forward, whether it's pop culture references or whatever, um, stuff pertaining to the city that we're in. Uh, so I always end up doing a ton of research. And then once I get out there, I kind of throw it all away and whatever bubbles back in, perfect. So yeah, I, I usually have like a ton of information in my head and uh, edit as I go as to what, what I need, what makes sense. Renee, your Detlef Shrimp drop this year is one of my favorite moments on television. So thank you very much for that <laughs> when we were in Seattle. Um, all right, Heyman, the last time we taped the podcast, by the way, we did that in a Sports Illustrated swimsuit closet. So that gives you what a class guy Paul Heyman was. I I literally did not roll out the red carpet. I rolled out swimsuits for him. None of which I modeled, I might add. Yes, nor nor myself. Uh, but you told me something that I thought that was really fascinating to me. And I know to the audience that was listening that for that podcast, you said that, um, the WWE, in this case, the chairman, obviously, and 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 his uh, his high court, they give you a lot of latitude in terms of what you are going to say in front of the audience. So I, I, I I'm sure your process is probably different than Renee's, and and if so, how? At what point are you formulating what you're going to say in front of the audience, and do you maybe not have to um, do as much backstage stuff as others because they clearly trust you when it comes to your time out there? Well, the trust only is extended as long as it's honored. Um, I look at every Monday as simply an audition to be invited back the next Monday. The, the day that I violate the trust that is bestowed upon me, I'll never have that trust again. So that's number one, and, and I think maybe number one A and one B. Two, I, I, I'm afforded that luxury because if I were to have to memorize the script, I can't be as authentic. I, I, I go by, uh, by, by the method. I'm a total method performer. I'm, I'm engrossed in that character, which is why now when I speak to you, I babble a lot because there's so many thoughts that's running through my head and I'm just spitting them out. If I were to do this interview in character, my breathing would be different. My voice would, would, would be more controlled. The, uh, the, the manner in which I speak to you would be a little slower. My words would be more purposeful. And I would, I would certainly speak in, in sound bites and the answers would be far shorter. Be, because once I step into that character, uh, he, he breathes differently than I do. And that's just, to me, that process happens as close to the time that I, I have to perform or get to perform or am privileged enough to perform as possible. I, I, I can't go into it 15 minutes early 
because then I'm walking around as that guy, and and then it's not special to me. Um, it, it, I I get to be that guy for only a short amount of time, and 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 I and, and I like being him. And because I get to be him, I cherish the moments that I am him. And it's just a different energy level. It's just a different energy level. It's a different breathing pattern. It's, you literally have to just step in, you know, the old thing of stepping into the character's shoes. And it, it, it goes back to the interview that, to me, was a groundbreaking uh, moment for me in my career, an opportunity in my career. And, and I owe it to Renee because she brought it out of me was that interview that we did last year when, when going into SummerSlam regarding Brock Lesnar and when Brock and I had, had, had pulled the scam on Roman Reigns doing a breakup on television. Um, and I, I wore the suit that I had worn to my father's funeral and I had not worn it since my father's funeral. And, um, I knew I needed something that day to come in and just be a wreck. I mean, just an absolute wreck where I just had no control on my emotions where I, I, I couldn't stop crying. If, if, if I wanted to stop crying where I could just take myself into a very emotional state. And we had someone sit in the chair opposite Renee uh, j just for the blocking because I didn't want to put the suit on until literally the cameras were ready to roll. And when the cameras were ready to roll, I stepped into the other room and I put on the suit. And the moment I did, I was a wreck. And I, the one thing I didn't do is I didn't want to look Renee in the eyes because I, I knew I would, I knew that I would look like hell. And so I kept my head down until we were rolling so that when she first said uh, about the rift between me and Brock and I looked up, I knew that my look would be so disheveled, so um, horrible and horrifying that it would take her out of her gate. Like, whoa, oh my God, you know? And, uh, and, and, and so that's how we did that. And that's my process. And I, 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 don't, I don't know how to articulate that or convey that in the words and how you take yourself there, but something has to trigger okay, now step in, now step into him. Now stop being you and be him. For example, I can have, um, backstage, I, I can have a sore throat or I could have a headache or a stomach ache or, 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 an, or an allergy attack. But for some reason, when I go through that curtain, I don't have it. I feel fine. I feel great when I'm him. And in the moment I come back through the curtain, I can sneeze or I, I can cough or my throat hurts or my stomach aches or, or whatever it is. But, but for the 10, 15, 20 minutes, I get to be that guy. I'm on top of the world. And, and that's, and that's just, it's just a method. It's, it's just method performance. And for some people that works. So I'm afforded that luxury because if you, if you ask me to just recite a script, I'm no good at it. I, I will, I really wouldn't be. Uh, I, I have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and 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 the rest of it, um, that 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 advocate can figure out while he's out there. He'll feel the crowd, he'll ride the wave, and he'll have fun doing it. And and that's just the way that that I do it. And 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 and, and it's worked for me. So I I don't want to tinker with the formula. And and I enjoy it when I get to do it. So because of all those factors. 
I think I'm afforded the luxury until it no longer works. And then I will no longer have that trust and that honor bestowed upon me because I won't, I won't have be able to earn it any longer. Renee, did that, uh, did that interview with, uh, Heyman feel real as opposed to improv or anything else? Oh, I mean, anytime I get to, um, share the screen with Paul, it's always, that's like, I love those moments. Moments like that make me like really enjoy what I'm doing, especially like coming from more of an acting background. I feel like I get to do that again. And that feels so good for me to be able to, to do that dance with him. And, uh, the interview that he's talking about, I mean, that was, that was such a powerful performance from Paul and, um, me trying to still play straight-laced reporter and then grilling this man with these questions when he's falling apart in front of me. Um, it's, it's so much fun to get to do that. Um, yeah, Paul is just, there's just so much power in, in his eyes and in his voice when you're working with him. Uh, and like that, those have always been some of my favorite moments of working with WWE. Renee, when did you first meet Paul Heyman and what stands out about that meeting? Um, gosh, when Paul and I first met, I, I mean, Paul's just been so great. I mean, I think of moments of him and I being able to sit up in the stands during Monday Night Raw when I first started and kind of talking about what works, what doesn't work to me, and what doesn't work. Um, you know, kind of as he was talking about earlier, you, you want to get some information about, um, as a performer or just somebody learning the ins and outs in the business of WWE, he's the guy to go to. Um, cause it's, it's no BS. He cuts to the chase and gives you the raw information, uh, that you need and the critiques that you might need. Um, but yeah, I, I think of those moments of us being able to just, yeah, sit in the stands and me get some information from him, especially, you know, when I first started, uh, going over into commentary, sitting down with him and asking him, how, how do I do this? Help me, <laughs> help me, please. Send me a, send me a life raft. Um, but yeah, I, he's always been uh, a great person for me to tap into to to learn more about all aspects of of WWE and performance. Paul, do you uh, do you have any uh, do you have a memory of the first or one of the earliest times you you met Renee? You know, it's funny. I, I um, when I first came back in 2012, um, one of the things that I, I was determined to do was to viciously abuse every interviewer and every announcer and every commentator. <laughs> and um, and th- there came a promo where they, you know, they said, oh, you're going to be interviewed by Renee Young. And, and I was, I was you're, you're going to send a female my way? Um, are you sure? And, and, and they're like, yeah, 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 you know. And I said, well, I, I, I'm, I'm not stepping out of character for her. Okay, great, you know. And, and I, I remember Renee coming up saying, hey, we had this interview, and, 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 and I, I, I just purposely didn't want her to be comfortable around me, and I just said, I said, listen, you just ask the question, I'll give you the answer, react to whatever answer I give you, you know? And, um, and Throw me to the wall. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, she, got thrown in the, she got thrown off the boat into deep shark-infested waters. And I remember either the first or second interview that I did with her, she asked me a question, and I just looked at her on camera, and, I, and we were live, and I just said, are you flirting with me? <laughs> and, she, she, and it was, you know, just the most uncomfortable thing for a <laughs> ramped up, just coming back from the ring where something had happened, a, aggressive male to ask a rookie WWE female interviewer. It, 
the most uncomfortable situation that she could possibly be placed <laughs> in, which is exactly where I wanted her to be because I'm, 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 I'm being an asshole. And the manner in which she handled it and allowed just for me to soak in on the heat, but at the same time maintain her own dignity. But you could see that I had um, made this person, this human being that's holding the microphone, feel as if she had been treated with contempt and disdain and disrespect by this disreputable, reprehensible, repugnant human being. And, and when it was over, just the manner in which she, she glared at me without, with, without stepping out of her own character, but as if she was trying to hide it, but couldn't contain her raw human emotions. And you could just read in her face, like, you know what? She thinks the real person behind that character is a real asshole. <laughs> and it just puts so much heat on me because you're looking at it going, man, she really doesn't like that guy. And it was just I would, great. I would always I have did, like a flurry of the worst words that you could say to somebody just running through my head so that it was um, displayed on my face. <laughs> and yet, everybody always thought that we were flirting with each other on television. <laughs> we would get nose to nose sometimes. Yes. Yes. Just because it was, there was a comfort level between us. Like I, I, and, and again, we would, we would never rehearse. We would rehearse blocking, but nothing else. Um, and, you know, where you want to go with this? Have no idea. We'll see where it goes. And we just had a trust in each other. Like, I don't know where this dance is going to go, but if we go over the cliff, we go over together, you know? <laughs> and it was, uh, but I just remember doing that. It was like the second or third interview I had done with her. And I just thought, wow, I'm in the presence of greatness with her. I mean, just, she brings something out of me that is just so where I want to take my character. And I remember going back to Vince McMahon and to Kevin Dunn, and I and I told them both, please don't have anybody ever interview me again besides Renee Young, because <laughs> she brings something out of me that um, I can't bring out of myself, and that and that other people don't understand how to tap into. But I will work with her on any basis that you graciously allow me to, because um, there's something that, that's brilliant and wonderful and magnificent there, and in terms of of dancing with somebody, um, it, it's, um, you know, when, 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 when you're looking to do something every week that you want to look back on in 10 and 15 years and say, wow, that, that, that holds the test of time. Um, you, you have to be absolutely uninhibited. It's, I won't even say fearless because I think fearless is too weak of a word. I, I think you have to be absolutely uninhibited. Just, you just have to open yourself up to the, to, to, to the extent that the other person will allow you to take advantage of them so that they can then take advantage of the opportunity that you offer as well. And, and, and as a performer, that's a lot of trust to offer somebody. And Renee gives it to me. And, and it's just... Uh, so I, I've, I've, I've never been inhibited during an interview with her. I, I don't know anything that I could do that would, you know, the, the moment they say, thank you, cut, or thank you, we've gone to commercial, 
that she would turn to me and go, hey, hey why would you do that to me? My God, man, I, I feel taken. You know, <laughs> I, I feel like you violated our 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 comfort level as performers. I just there there's nothing there, there, there there's nothing off limits with either one of us, and there's nothing that she could do that would make me sit there and say, hey, why would you put me in that position? I would I would go with any position that she'd want to put me in because there's just that that authenticity when we work with each other. And I noticed that at the second or third time. And I just, I was blown away by it because I, I, I know I put her in the absolute worst position and, 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 and she handled it with just the greatest amount of dignity. When I desperately tried to put her in an undignified situation. And then she gave me the heat that I was seeking with the contempt in her eyes when the interview was over while still letting the audience know she's trying to hide it. It was just brilliant on her end. I miss those moments. I should do some for old time's sake. <laughs> Renee, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to send you the cut of what Paul just said. So you can bring that <laughs> yes, for contract negotiation <laughs> time. All right. This is where we're going to, uh, we're going to end on this. You guys have been really generous with your time. And so I'm going to get you out on this. Um, uh, same question for both of you. Paul, I'm going to start with you. How, Maybe difficult is not the right word, but has it been any kind of adjustment for you, Paul, to navigate between the on-air character and that work you do as a performer with the regular guy who's got to pay bills, take his kids to school, walk the dog? I wonder if, and Renee's been in the business for less time, so her answer might be different, but does that does that become easier? Uh is it is it challenging, or am I looking too deep into it that once you leave that arena, uh, that other person's gone, and you become the real person who's got to live the life like the well, rest? Well, I of don't us. know how much of my life is like the rest of everybody. Um, I uh, <laughs> yeah, I, that's true. I, I live a very charmed existence. I, I have two children that blow me away every day with just how much smarter and more intelligent. And, 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 and more adapt to this world than I ever have been in my life. Um, the big joke around my house is when I grow up, I want to be more like my children. Um, I, uh, no, I don't really have any problems adjusting to it because number one, I, I understand how fleeting it can be, even though I've been doing it for 32 years. Uh, I, I, it's like, here, here's an example. This Sunday at WrestleMania, not, not to promote the show, but it, it's just the perfect example. Um, my kids will end up coming backstage at some point before Brock and I come out to the ring for the match. I will inherently, at one point when I see my children tell them, if Brock Music's playing... I don't come out with him. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. It's been a hell of a ride. Because I am fully prepared at any moment for that music to be playing. And Vince is looking at the monitor and says, you know what? Had enough of Heyman. Let's send out Brock on his own. And Vince reach over and grab my wrist and say, sit down next to me. Put on the headsets. Sit down and call this one with me from back here. And I'm fully prepared for that moment. I, 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 and because I'm aware that it can happen. Fully cognizant of the fact 
it can happen. Doesn't mean it's likely, but doesn't mean it won't happen one day. And I'm fully prepared for it to be this Sunday or any other day in my career. And, and, and won't look at it like, oh my God, how can you do this to me? I'll look at it and say, wow, I, I, I came into this business as a mouthpiece, a manager, an advocate, whatever the role is considered. In 1987, when the role was at that time already antiquated, Lou Albano, Fred Blassie, the Grand Wizard, they were, you know, they, 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 they were gone from the role. It was, it was Bobby Heenan and Jimmy Hart and, and Jim Cornette. It was their era. And, 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 and while Bobby Heenan and Jim Cornette and Jimmy Hart had a few more years in it, the role of J.J. Dillon, the, the, the role was done. It was already being phased out in 1987. And I've lasted 32 years in, in, in a role that was being phased out when I debuted. So I look at it as every day that I get to do this as a privilege and an honor and a gift that's been bestowed upon me because I simply don't want to really work for a living and I'm, and I'm good enough to talk to talk or, you know, I, I bluntly, I talk shit for a living and that's what I do. I talk shit for a living. <laughs> and if I'm paired with someone like Brock Lesnar, I have someone that can back up what I'm saying. So, you know, it's, uh, it's not difficult at all to come out of the character. And I'm again, like I said earlier, I'm very cautious about when I step into that character because I, I I cherish every moment I get to be him, uh, which is why when I get to be him, I, I try to get the most out of him in those moments because I, I, I know how rare those moments are in my life and that it doesn't go on forever. So, no, I, I really have no problem. I have no problem stepping into that character. And I have no problem stepping out of it either. I, I, and, and I'm, I'm blessed in, in both circumstances. Yeah, I really appreciate that answer. Uh, Renee, the same question, and obviously for you, you know, the, the audience has gotten a glimpse of your personal life because obviously you do some shoulder programming where we see you um, away from uh, the WWE, although obviously you're interacting with people um, in the WWE. So for you, is it, uh, how has that navigation been between the on-air person and, you know, the, the person who's, uh, uh, drinking, uh, <laughs> Sadly, some I don't get to have some more that often. Um, no, I don't have, um, I really don't have an issue with it either. <laughs> um, but there's also truly not many differences between Renee Young and Renee Good. Um, I'm, I'm essentially the same person. Ray Good probably swears a little more than Renee Young might be able to get away with. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, every now and then, it's like any, if you're doing any kind of a broadcast, I mean, you put on that broadcast cap, and yeah, sometimes I might even just take it off during commercial breaks and, you know, joke around with, with Graves and Cole uh, during the commercial break. But um, yeah, as far as taking off that headset and getting in the car and, and heading home to do whatever, yeah, I've, I've never had an issue switching between Renee Young and, and Renee Good. Same person, same chick. <laughs> it's a great way to end this podcast. Same shit. I love that. All right. Paul Heyman and Renee Young are uh, essentially my wow. two favorite people in the WWE, in, in addition to my Becky Lynch, obviously, newfound love. Uh, Renee Young is, as I said at the top, she's one of the commentators on Monday Night Raw, first woman to serve as an analyst on that show full-time. She will be part of the WrestleMania broadcast team 
this Sunday. That's from MetLife Stadium. Uh, go on the WWE Network, and you can see all of WrestleMania. Paul Heyman, of course, is the advocate for Brock Lesnar, but beyond that, he is uh, one of the seminal figures in the history of sports entertainment. Uh, check out his marketing company as well, and you can see Paul Heyman on Raw delivering week after week. Uh, it took me a long time to book this podcast. That's really basically saying it took <laughs> me a long time to get you, Paul Heyman, but it was worth it. You guys are fantastic. I, I really appreciate, as someone who watches you, your passion and dedication to this craft that a lot of people really care about. And uh, I wish you both nothing but the best, and uh, and I hope our paths will cross Thank again soon. Much. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, Renee. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. I will send you uh, money to your PayPal account for all the nice words that you said about me. <laughs> <laughs> send money to me too, Renee, just for fun. I appreciate it. Perfect. <laughs> all right, Paul and Renee, thank you. Get back to work. Entertain me, please. Thanks, guys. See ya. All right, as I said at the top, we bring in John O'Rand, a frequent guest of the Sports Media Podcast. He is at the Sports Business Daily and Sports Business Journal and probably somewhere in the D.C. area. John, welcome back to the podcast. Always good to be on RD. All right, John, let's start with, there's a lot to talk about, but let's start with Tony Romo because there have been a lot of stories, it feels like, in the last couple weeks of people speculating about Tony Romo's broadcasting future, people speculating about how much money Tony Romo can be making. You know, you always think to yourself, is this just sort of speculation for the fun of writing about an interesting guy? Is is this competing agents leaking stuff? Is this Romo's camp leaking stuff? My sort of quick thought, and obviously I'm interested in yours, is that from everything I have reported on CBS, from my conversation with Romo, to talking about all the people on talking with all the people on Romo's crew to talking to CBS executives I would give it a 99.9% chance that Romo is coming back to CBS that that's that's where I stand is it possible he could leave I mean anything's possible you know John O'Ran could become president of the United States I guess that's technically possible but I don't see it uh, I feel like Romo is going to be a CBS employee for a long time there's many reasons I feel that but let me stop talking and go to you. What have you made of all these Romo stories over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, they, they've uh, they've been interesting, uh, and I've gone down from ninety nine point nine to probably ninety five percent just hmm. because of all the chatter that's going around and trying to figure out um, so, sort of who's putting this this noise out in the, into the market. Um, I talk to the same people that, that that you've talked to, I'm sure, at CBS and and in Romo's camp. And I would be completely shocked if CBS does not lock Tony Romo up long-term. I mean, uh, Sean McManus went out on a limb, hired a a complete neophyte to take over the number one uh, broadcast team. And we saw what happened when when ESPN did that with Jason Witten. I mean, this was not a certainty back then. And I think that that, uh, Sean McManus at CBS and David Burson as well, they feel they just... They, they feel a uh, certain sense of pride over Tony Romo, and I think that they're going to do whatever it takes to lock him up. And I, I view everything I've heard from Romo's camp is that he's a, you know, he likes the CBS group. He thinks the CBS group, uh, Jim Nance and, and the producers, 
have helped make him better at, at what he does. Um, they went out on the limb for him, and he's a loyal guy. Uh, so anything can happen. Money talks, and, and there are a lot of competing uh, uh, people that are out there. But I, I, everything, all of my reporting suggests that it's, it's going to get done with CBS. And so the, these stories, just the volume of these stories that are out there, I've, I just find it to be a little bit surprising, and I'm trying to figure out who's planning them and, and why they're coming out the way that they're coming out. Uh, well, I appreciate that. I'm not surprised, by the way, because the fact is Tony Romo generates a lot of interest and generates a lot of page views. Even on a site like mine, subscription site, uh, the Tony Romo Q&A that I did generated a, a crazy amount of engagement. You know, We're not judged on page views, but I was able to see the, the page view numbers, and they were off the charts. I am sure that is the same for those who write about it, uh, Tony on the open web. And that was certainly the case for me when I was writing about him for Sports Illustrated. The reason why, John, I, I put it at 99.9%, again, having talked to Romo, having talked to others, you have to remember, Tony's only had one producer in his career. He's only had one play-by-play person who's a very close friend of his. He has great comfort with his production team. And in order to make the leap to go to another network, he'd be starting, John, with an entire new crew, and especially an entire new producer, an entire new director, an entire new philosophy, perhaps, of how someone does football. And at the end of the day, if, what he, if his asset or leverage is money, which obviously in a sense it is, we're not talking about a guy who's uh, getting you know five or six million dollars. It's not going to change his life. It's not life-changing money given... He's made more than $100 million in his career. So I don't see it. I don't see it at all. But like you, you know, you see all these stories out there and you do start to think, well, you know, is the RoboCamp putting it out there? What's going on? So I, I, I know where you're coming from on that. But I think if you just. Also, like, uh, Richard, yeah. where, where does he go? Uh, Collinsworth isn't going to leave. Yep. Uh, I don't think Aikman's leaving. Yeah, there's only. I th- don't think Thursday Night Football is a big enough platform for uh, compare, compared to where he is right now. Right. And uh, the the ESPN Monday Night Football schedule compared to what 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 CBS gets, I, I just also it goes beyond my belief that CBS will do whatever to keep him and Tony Romo is comfortable and and, and wants to stay. There there really aren't that many options that are out there for a number one NFL TV analyst. Yeah, I mean the the fact is that the options in theory I guess would be Fox and Fox figures out a way to make it work with Aikman and Romo and those two packages and or some other player coming into the market when the NFL re-ups, you know, in Amazon, Apple, Google, et cetera. And, you know, that making this up, they, they pay Tony Romo some crazy number, $25 million a year to be there, to be their analyst. But I don't see it. I just, I don't see it. Also at the same, at the end of the day, Romo's always been a loyal guy. Uh, whether that it was to the Cowboys, whether that's to his friends, etc. So I, I don't see it. It's certainly going to be fascinating to read and to watch, but um, if I was going to Vegas, I would bet significant money on that one. Um, all right, John, We before we get to the RSNs, which I know you love talking about, let us celebrate. I can't talk. The RSNs, it's like a story a day coming out of those things. Like I love the, I, the, the that's paying for my kids' college education, basically. So I can't wait to talk about them. Yeah, some people like fantasy baseball. John Horan likes uh, RSNs. <laughs> um, so Get Up, I believe. It, remind me about this. Get Up, did Get Up start April 1st, 2018? I think, am I right about that? 
right around there? Uh, or I, April 2nd? I'm not sure what the April exact 3rd? date was, but I know that we're on the, this week is the, the year anniversary is coming up this week. All right. There was so much talk about Get Up. Uh, both of us were guilty of that. Not as guilty as some others who are Get Upologists, but definitely we talked about it. Um, my thought was that the show initially uh, had no chance of making it long term. Um, I probably would still sort of stick to that, although, again, and this is where we're going to get it, I must give them credit. You know, the they, they were able to survive the early days. They retooled the show, obviously, and the narrative, the ratings narrative, they've shut down. Part of that, of course, is I think just less people are writing about it. You can't write about Get Up every day. But um, but they have done a good job of, of sort of getting getting away from the story of their viewership, getting away from the story of their initial cast thankfully we have the tracking get up website the arbitrary twitter feed at did get up get 300k good job by these guys and according to what i'm looking at now as we tape this get up has uh, reached over 300,000 137 times out of 254 episodes you know to me a six, the success here was always you know 500,000 you know that number to me would have been i would consider a success but they have They've gotten in the 400,000s. Um, they're no longer getting, you know, 180, 190 really ugly kind of viewership. And you have to tip your cat. They, they, if nothing else, they've, uh, you know, John, they retooled the show. And, it, and, it, and that retooling seemed to have drawn more audience. I don't know if, they, I don't know if this thing's going to last forever. But it, at least at the moment, it doesn't seem like it's on a deathbed. How do you, how do you read Get Up? Oh, yeah. I, I, I've always... Uh... You were much more pessimistic about it than than I was, as I recall uh, coming in. Like I, I, I think that Get Up is going to be around for a, a good long while. Um, I, look, morning TV is hard. The amount of competition in morning TV uh, is, especially when you can see your you know highlights on on your phone. It's it's you know you can watch any one of the morning shows on network. You have all the political morning shows on 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 the news networks. You have uh, you know radio simulcasts on all the other sort of sports channels. So the idea of, of tra- trying to do something new and different, and, uh, and uh, uh, to me, the, the, the whole thing about Get Up was the amount of press coverage that came before the launch hmm. almost guaranteed that it was going to be a rocky launch. Because it, like I said, it's hard to launch a, a, a morning show, and, and, and then you can't really make the changes that you want to make because everybody takes a look at those and, and they, they're just so public. Like if it had started, let's say on ESPN two with no, with no press coverage, they could have made a lot of the changes. They'd be pretty much where they are right now. And and it would be a successful show. Um, but I, I think that, you know, they've made some changes. It, it corresponds much more closely to sports center. I think uh, Greenberg is doing, you know, a, a different job as a host than he did uh, at the outset. And it's uh it's something that I think that the, um, um, you know, when Skipper left, there was a big question about about who really supported it or who backed it, and I think that the, there's a, it has a lot of backing at Bristol, and they're committed to see this thing through. Well, you know, the, the, a couple things there, obviously, you know, um, they did break up their most successful radio franchise ever. There were stops and starts with the show. They. Um, you know, they built this essentially like a new studio for it. They shifted one of their talents, Michelle Beadle, across the country. So there's a lot going on with this show prior to it started. John, how much do you think in terms of sort of shaping the story, at least early, um, how much was this show affected by the fact that I believe it was Marissa Guthrie 
in the Hollywood Reporter reporting what the salaries were. Um, you shouldn't basically be judging anything, I think, on salaries. But the reality is probably, you know, all of us do in a sense if you – it's just like sports. You know, you see somebody making a big amount of money, you expect some kind of production or in the television world some kind of viewership number. And I wonder uh, how much do you think that show was at least optically affected by the fact that those salaries were released? Oh, I thought that was a killer. I thought that was that that was – if there was going to be a death knell, that was the death knell to, to the show. Um, I, and I think it's like almost professional jealousy. I think people like wanted it to fail based on the numbers that came out for, for each one of the, uh, the, the hosts that were on it. And especially those salary numbers came out soon after ESPN was laying off a, a lot of people because yep. of uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, price cutbacks or budget cutbacks. So it, it was just an, impo- an impossible story to overcome, and, and seeing those salary figures was, was a real killer at, at the outset. All right, John, uh, we, will, we will track GetUp uh, as it continues. So John Oren is bullish on GetUp, thinks it's going to last long term. I'm still a little more s- skeptical, but I will say um, I tip my hat to them uh, because I'm less skeptical now. And, uh, you know, I will absolutely own the fact if uh, GetUp is on the air four or five years from now, uh, you, you know, you give them credit and—, and and they pulled it off. Where, John, are we on the RSN sales, the regional sports networks? The story feels like it has been going on forever. Um, are we anywhere near some kind of final resolution? We have to be because uh, the, the uh, clock, the 90-day clock for uh, Disney to sell these RSNs has already started. So apparently they're going to be taking binding bids in about a uh, little, little over two weeks from now. Um, from from whatever companies want to swoop in and, and try to buy them, and uh, to me it's it's completely interesting because you have you know uh, a group that's backed by Ice Cube, you know that that is a, a it's a very serious bid. They've talked to serious bankers. They're, they're going to come up with a, a lot of money, and uh, and and they have a, a pretty serious bid to make. Major League Baseball is involved, and and they they're they're making a serious bid. Uh, Sinclair. Liberty, a couple of uh, traditional media companies, also are, are involved with uh, with making these bids. And to me, this is completely inter- interesting because, you know, depending on who gets it, I mean, the way people view their uh, local RSN or the way they view their their games locally, you know, it has the potential really to change dr- drastically over the next you know couple of years. Just because, you know, Fox ran it for so long, and in New York. Comcast dropped the Yes Network, which uh, Fox owned, in Connecticut and New Jersey, and it stayed off for a full year. And Fox couldn't get it on until Comcast's contract with Fox News was up, and they were basically like, "Well, if you want Fox News too, then you have to take Yes Network." So the, they were able to do that. With Fox no longer selling the the, the RSNs, then it, it it gives a lot of leverage back to the distributors as well. The first one up is going to be Dish Network this summer. Hmm. And Dish Network drives a hard bargain, and it's completely conceivable that regardless of who buys it, Dish Network just kind of says, no, we'll, we'll take a pass. And then Verizon after that, and then Charter after that. And it just, it, it, it's, it's just like a wave of, uh, of, of uh, different distributors coming up. And how they do these deals and what these deals look like, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's really inside baseball stuff but it has the potential to really change how people watch their, their local games. John, do you think there's a favorite in all this, uh, uh, the most likely uh, most likely bidder to get these? 
I've always thought it was Liberty. I think uh, uh, Liberty run by John Malone. He's an old cable guy. They know how to run these RSNs. They know how to run media companies. And if Liberty gets it, it's more likely just to continue on as is. Hmm. But if for whatever reason, like Ice Cube's group gets it, like, he wants to, to create like a, a, a different kind of regional sports network. I mean, the, the, the potential for it to change if Ice Cube gets it is huge and he has again he has serious backing in terms of uh, in terms of money so it, it's going to be interesting to see Joe, the last one is and maybe this was your reporting um where do you put mlb's interest in these regional networks i feel like i read either manfred or someone else talking about interest in fox's rsns yeah it's crazy i thought i, I when i first heard about mlb's involvement i thought they just wanted to kind of get in see the bidding books and then kind of you know get an inside uh, look at what the uh, different contracts are and how the RSN's business is. But every single one of my sources says that MLB is very serious about trying to to take control over these RSN's as a way to, you know, it's 21 RSN's. I'm not sure how many baseball teams that is out of the 21, but it's a, it's a pretty good amount. And that, that way they can sort of start to try to control the local rights. Where Where that would be interesting, if MLB gets it, what happens in, say, Dallas? Like, you know, Mark Cuban doesn't necessarily want to negotiate with MLB over his rights in Dallas. So that if MLB gets it, that will be wild to see what happens with the NBA teams, with the NHL teams, with some MLS teams that are getting some rights fees. So it's a, it has the potential to really throw everything, create a lot of upheaval in those local markets. All right, John, explain to me what is going on with the Pac-12 network and its relationship with ESPN and long-term thinking by that conference about where its rights will be or will not be. Uh, give me, you know, I think Denzel Washington, didn't he say famously in a movie like, uh, talk to me like I'm five years old, tell, tell me about this. So basically, <laughs> give me, give Wait, me what a... what movie is that from? I should know. Give me a... Uh, uh, give me like the the Cliff Notes sort of synopsis of what's going on with the Pac-12 and media rights. Okay, Pac-12 launched uh, just like the SEC and the Big Ten and the ACC coming up. The Pac-12 launched its own uh, suite of channels, and they just have never really been able to get carriage, uh, which means like uh, uh, people in the Pac-12 market aren't able to see it in the same way that people in the SEC market can see. You know, Alabama or uh, the Big Ten markets can see. You know. Ohio State or Michigan, so Directv doesn't have a deal with them. They're not on the best uh, the best tiers in a lot of the, the cable markets, and so ESPN uh, approached them and said, "We'll handle distribution for you. So we'll try to get you on Directv in exchange for extending our our media rights deal into the, the 2030s." And that that was a, a potentially really good deal for the conference because ESPN has. Uh, been able to get carriage for the ACC network. It's been able to get carriage for the SEC network. So it, it knows how to do it knows how to do these types of deals. Um, Larry Scott said no, and he said no because he's had 2024 circled on his calendar for a long time. That's when the media rights deal with Fox is up. That's when the media rights deal with ESPN is up, and he has he thinks in 2024 Amazon and Google. Fox and ESPN and NBC and maybe CBS, and he just thinks that there's going to be a bidding war and that there's going to be a windfall of rights. And he's been he's been gearing for that strat his whole strategy for years has been going to 2024. And if he extends ESPN, 
that, then all of a sudden the strategy, he needs a new strategy. So they said no to ESPN. They're really going whole hog to 2024, and then we'll see what happens in 2024 if he's right. I mean, it's a, it's a risky bet. Uh, nobody, not a lot of people have lost money by suggesting that uh, rights fees are going to go up. I mean, they always go up. Uh, the question is like, sort of how much and if it's going to be worth it in the end. I kind of like that bet. Am I crazy to like that bet? That seems like an interesting bet to me. I like that bet, but then the, the question for me is what happens to uh, the Pac-12 network? Yeah, and 2024 understood. isn't two years away. That's, you know, I'm a reporter, but even I know that's like five years away, right? Um, yep. So it's, uh, it, it, you know, five years is, you know, not an insignificant, insignificant amount of time. So it's a... Uh, it's a risky bet, but it's a, we'll see. I, 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 like, I, I like executives that take risks, and, that, and that's a, that certainly is a risk. By the way, an update. The uh, Now explain it to me like I'm a four-year-old. Is Denzel in Philadelphia as lawyer? There, that's uh, it, yes. Joe Miller, great film, uh, Tom Hanks, Jonathan Demme there. Um, all right, uh, two more things here before I let you get out of here. CBS Turner has had a great tournament in terms of viewership but as we tape this uh today which is on we're taping this on uh on april 1st um there's no duke in the tournament john and obviously as you know from all your viewership and ratings reporting over the years duke really is kind of the differentiator in kentucky as well when it comes to march madness especially in that tournament they have virginia they have michigan state they have Purdue. They have Texas Tech. Now, the ratings of the viewership is going to be up from last year because the games are on CBS this year as opposed to Turner. But, um, you know, that's – I mean, let's just be honest. That Those are challenging teams, I think, for for CBS. Uh, you know, Michigan State's a national team, but the rest of those teams, um, you know, they're going to – I think they're going to have to hope that people are just – have been so into this tournament that they're going to tune in even though some of these teams are, are absolutely have no track record of bringing a national audience in. Yeah, I, I, I've, I'm of two minds of this. One is, you know, the whole tournament is marketing this Final Four, and so people are invested in, in some of these storylines, like the storyline of just Tom Izzo and, and Michigan State and so, sort of like the way that he coaches and the, the, that got caught under a uh, magnifying glass in the, in the first round. Um, Virginia, a number one seed that lost in, in in the first round last year, the only one in history, and now is a, a sort of a redemption tour here. You know, a relatively new team in in Texas Tech uh, that that that's, uh, that's out there, and Purdue is you know a, a Big Ten team, and Big Ten uh, fans you know will will follow that. I would think. I also think that the Final Four in particular is is almost like the Super Bowl. I think it's an event. I think it doesn't really matter what teams you have in the Final Four. I think people will sit down and watch the Final Four. Where I think that comes in to hurt is if, say, you have a Purdue-Texas Tech final. I think on Monday night, that's not as much of sort uh, uh, that's not as much of an event as the Final Four is. Right. Um, and so I think that I think that they could really see a. Again, they're going against cable last year, so the, the number's going to be up regardless, but the numbers aren't going to be as good on Monday night if, it, uh, depending on the matchup and depending on what sort of what storylines go through. Yeah. But the Final Four, I, th- I think that they're, they're pretty safe and pretty set. I, they would have liked to have Duke, Carolina, and Kentucky, no doubt, um, but I, I think the Final, Four, the Final Four rates no matter what. Yeah, that's true. It, it does, especially on CBS. I think what, you know, the, the sort of the interesting thing here is that if you did have Duke, and you did have them on CBS, and you did have obviously you know the number one pick in the draft, and you know 
potentially two, three, four, wherever, you know, the RJ Barrett's go, et cetera. Um, you really could have been looking at, you know, maybe a 30 million national title game. If you, if you got a close game and it was going down to the, to the final buzzer, that's kind of where the difference here is going to be in that you're, you know, it's still going to be an event and still gonna have millions and millions of people watching, but it's almost like sort of what could have been given how much Duke has sort of over indexed during this tournament. Um, all right. The last thing, John, I want to, yeah, in fact, I happened to be in Capital One arena yesterday during yeah. the uh, Duke Michigan state game. And, the atmosphere in that arena, and it was like all around Zion, and and just sort of, even more so than R.J. Barrett and the sort of you know the the other Duke players. Like there was a different atmosphere than I've seen in any college basketball game, especially a, a tournament game, which was really really cool to see. And they were they're not going to have that with Michigan State going through. That's definitely true. Well, in terms of a viewership play, I I can't remember the uh, the last college player to draw the kind of interest that Zion Williamson has. I, I'm sure. Austin Carp or one of your colleagues can go back and figure it out. But, you know, LeBron was not in college. Uh, you know, Durant, Carmelo, whoever the great college players are, you know, Derek Roses, et cetera. None of these guys drew this kind of – Steve Blake, uh, Juan Dixon. Yes, yeah, Steve Blake, Juan, Juan Grievous, Grievous – uh, Grievous Vasquez, Grievous, absolutely. Yeah. Trying, to, trying to give you your great Maryland uh, uh, players. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and the other thing about Dukes that's fascinating is – I th- you know, there's always going to be hate watchers of Duke, but I think they were actually a real a team where a lot of people really liked this Duke team just because they have such great players and uh, and they play great basketball. So it's a it's a big hit for CBS. Um, well, Zion right, the- was like a LeBron James type. I mean, he played with a big smile on his yep. face. He's he's better than anybody else on the court, and people just like to watch him. I mean, he was a uh, he, he was an incredible. Uh, just watching the the game yesterday. I couldn't take my eyes off him. He, the way he plays basketball, it was just different than anybody else in college. Yeah, he's a unicorn. I mean, the the guy, you know, he's he should be a phenomenal pro. You've really never seen anybody like the guy. He's a, you know, he's incredibly likable. He's exciting. He even had like a, a crazy incident this year with the with the sneaker. All of that stuff brings massive exposure to the sport, and so. Um, yeah, I was hoping Duke was going to be in the Final Four just because I think it would have been a more interesting Final Four. I don't have any dog in the fight, but um, but but uh, but CBS and Turner will not get that this year. All right, last one for me, and we'll pr- I will probably have you on before this happens, uh, but I did want to ask you about this. The NFL draft, John, is very different this year, and I think viewers are going to sort of come to learn that when you see more publicity for this, in that not only does the NFL Network and ESPN have the draft, but ABC does this year. They have the draft for the first two nights, with their own unique teams, and then they're going to simulcast the ESPN broadcast. And on that first night, it's Robin Roberts, it's Reese Davis, it's the College Game Day analyst, and Pat Mahomes. That uh, that what that does is that means that ESPN, ABC, far and away, are going to have the most people viewing their draft product. But what do you what do you make of this? Um, I love when ESPN or any other network gives me alternate broadcasts because that to me is great as a viewer. Um, you know, I, I'm sure for the for them, sometimes they can cannibalize viewers, et cetera, et cetera. But I love that. I mean, I think that's the future. We've seen that on mega casting. And yeah, no doubt ABC, ESPN's doing this because they want to get in curry with the NFL. They're trying to make uh, for a better package. They want the Super Bowl, et cetera, et cetera. But I, this is one of those things where I feel like everybody wins, including the viewers, because you are getting another option now for the NFL draft. Now you have three different kinds of broadcasts, depending on what you like best. Yeah, I mean, look, it's pretty obvious. ABC is doing this to curry favor with the, with the NFL. But if if you take a look at this as a television product, uh, and, and for ABC, 
the draft has, you know, how many people getting drafted, 30 people getting drafted, each one has a story. And so if you can, if you're ABC and you're going to sort of a, you know, general sports fan or even non-sports fans to be able to tell some of the best stories about some of the people getting drafted. And, uh, and you, uh, you can just imagine what the, what the broadcast uh, station is going to look like. And that's something that, you know, I could see my mom taking a look at and, and, and tuning in and just kind of getting caught in, in, into some of those, uh, some of that storytelling. And if you want more hardcore football, then you go, to uh, to ESPN, and if you want even harder court football, then you can go to NFL Network, I, I suppose. But I I think that like there are different options here for different people. But I think if you're ABC and you're if you take it take a step back and don't look at it as sports TV, but just look at it as television, I think that you know they're going to do something that's going to be kind of new, unique, and different with this. And I, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing it. I had a very smart uh, reader, John, uh, for the Athletic this week. I did a media mailbag who. Uh, asked me what I thought the viewership would be if NBC aired a high-profile Olympic event after their Super Bowl, which they just switched with Fox in terms of the date. And I kind of love that question because let's say they did something really big, you know, the downhill or, or snowboard cross or something. You could be looking at a 50 million viewership number after the Super Bowl, given I think you'd have a lot of sports fans who would stick with that programming as opposed to, you know, here's NBC like debuting the new drama that they got. What do you think? I love that. Yeah. And then, you, I mean, the, the reason you do with the drama is it's like marketing for the people that will then tune in. I mean, the Olympics, NBC's made a huge bet on the Olympics, as everybody knows. I mean, if you, if you were to do that, then it would sort of market the next two weeks of, of games. Of, uh, so it, that would make sense to me. I mean, we're, we're so far ahead of the game here in terms of deciding that, but that 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 would be uh that wouldn't surprise me if that were to happen. All right, John, is there any a smart reader for Yeah, sure. yeah, it is. I have good readers. Is there anything else, John, that you want to talk about? Do you uh, is there are there any leaks that you want to let us know that you've been privy to? I mean, any anything? By the way, I've I've been I I, I I do have it on good authority that people are still leaking at ESPN, John. I mean, I know that's incredible to believe. <laughs> But I, I've heard that, that it is true. Like, it, like literally, the leaks have not stopped. I mean, we thought they might, but, but they're still filtering through somehow. I don't know how it's happening. I'm happy to report that people are still taking my phone calls, and they are still uh, responding to my text messages. Uh, so I'm happy about that. But, uh, but, but they, they are much more, uh, I don't want to say scared. It's, a, it's, it's not as free-flowing as, as it once was. I think that, that there was a message that was sent, and, uh, and, and I think that uh, people have taken note of that. Yeah, I mean, as I'm talking about as opposed to the official leaks from uh, the La Placa uh, land to specific Ooh, are you Are you saying who your leaks are, Richard? You can't say that. No, I'm not saying I'm getting any leaks. I'm saying I'm sure there are still, you know, the official leaks. We like to put official in quotes <laughs> there. All right, listen, John, as always, it's good of you to do this. You do this for absolutely no money, which is a great price for me. Uh, do you have any other appearances coming up in any other sports media podcast that I need to know about? Uh, no, you know what? I, w- I would have let you know uh, straight off. Nothing nothing for the time being, but uh, we'll, we'll see. All right. Yeah, I, say a, yes to, a, I, I say yes to anything, Richard. You know that. You're a popular guest, John. I, I, I respect that. <laughs> America's right. podcast. America. So, and here, I'm going to give you some pub here. You're going to like this. John O'Ran is uh, a reporter, of course, for the Sports Business Daily and the Sports Business Journal. And one of the things um, – he is starting, along with Michael Smith, his colleague, is these guys have an amazing newsletter that comes out uh, four times a week. It's, uh, it goes beyond the stuff that they've reported on the Sports Business Daily. It's a total must uh, 
read for me. John, now let me ask you this because I don't know this. Can can readers get this if they are not subscribers to the Sports Business Daily, or is this one of these additional perks that you get because you're a subscriber to SBD or SBJ? Yeah, there was a, a lot of talk internally about what to do with this, and we decided, uh, at least initially, it's it's only open to uh, to subscribers. So okay. if you subscribe to either SBJ or, or, or SBD, or if you attend a conference, uh, you, you'll be getting these. Okay, and I know there's a lot of people who subscribe to those who listen to this podcast, so for some reason, if you have not uh, gotten it, check it out. I mean, no bullshit here. It's really, really good. Um, and John and Mike actually a lot of times sort of give you some behind the scenes on their reporting, which I really appreciate. That's really interesting to me. All right, John, thanks very much for uh, joining us today on the Sports Media Podcast, and uh, I'm sure our paths will cross again. Be well. Thanks, John. Thanks, Richard. Bye. All right, my thanks to John Oran for that conversation, and obviously I cannot thank uh, Renee Young and Paul Heyman enough. I got them during WrestleMania week. They did me a favor by coming on and uh, – you know, they've both been on this podcast before. The Heyman was on my Sports Illustrated one. Renee was on this one. And I got so much respect for both of them as just in terms of performers and what they do. And Renee Young is just always cool to talk to offline. So I wish both of them nothing but the best. And obviously, you can check them out WrestleMania week. But this podcast, if you're a wrestling fan, should be really was very little about WrestleMania. So I, I they gave you, I feel like, more stuff sort of about them behind the scenes that we usually get when it comes to, you know, as they say in the business, shoot interviews. So I, I can't thank them enough. Um, if you like this kind of content, please uh, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and uh, Radio.com. Uh, check this podcast out on all those forums. And if you head to any of those pages, you will see the previous guests that we have had. It's a long list. Uh, not necessarily going to name it here, but, um, you know, major names, obviously, in the sports media business, and uh, and hopefully you'll you enjoy this content. And we'll come back. Uh, Terrence Malgoin did a phenomenal job of producing this podcast. Not easy, given it took us a long time to track down uh, Mr. Heyman, and uh, we were in three different places as well. And so, uh, my thanks to him very much. Uh, my thanks again to the guests. Thank you to Cadence Thirteen, and uh, we will see you again soon on the Sports Media Podcast.